Okay, well, I'd like last time to end in about 15 minutes a little early so that we could talk, 15, 20 minutes so that we could we could have some conversation. And, of course, again, you're always really welcome to just to contribute in the midst of the flow of it all. I mean, just say anything, observations, questions, whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I mean, I really like it. I, it's better. It's better that way if we have a dialogue as opposed to a monologue. Um, I know I get going real quick, and I got a lot of material I want to cover, but, you know, don't feel like you're interrupting me. All right, so I think we're basically going to do, like we did five on Abraham, we're going to do five on Moses, and uh, this is the four of the five. It's very concentrated. We could get into so much more. We could have t- focused about uh, uh, the burning bush, The, um, the what's the big events of the book of Exodus that we haven't even talked about. I mean, it was like we skipped it over. The parting of the Red Sea. What else? I mean, there's another huge event that we... It's directly before the parting of the Red Sea is the actual Exodus itself with the the Passover lamb. And I mean, oh, oh, there's all this stuff we could have got into. And we're we're coming up... If anybody here attends the the Easter Vigil, the Easter Vigil is a great time uh, because what you do if, if you got the endurance... Is there's a number of readings that are quite lengthy, and it goes for a long time. It could be like an upwards of an hour of reading. And there's all of these sections from the Bible that go through salvation history. And the first reading is from the creation account. And I think the second one is is the Passover, because the Passover is directly behind the the Paschal season, the the Easter season, um, and Easter. So Christ, uh, his sacrifices foreshadowed uh, most obviously in the Passover lamb. And uh, I just read recently somewhere that um, in the days of uh, our Lord's earthly ministry, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed in the temple, I think we know this on pretty, pretty sound historical grounds, that the lamb, when it was sacrificed, it was sacrificed like on a spit. They would, they would put a a spit down it from like from its head to stern, and then across its arms. I mean, I want to really see if that's really solidly historically true. If it is, it's just unbelievable. That's yet one more shows you how Jewish tradition, as well as the Bible, well as the Old Testament, the Jewish tradition is related to Christianity and foreshadows Christianity. So that the lamb and the Passover was basically crucified, had its arms out like this, and it was it had a spit going through it like that. Uh, so we skipped over all those things, and we're just focusing on this really kind of narrow event of the Sinai Covenant. And so today's session is called the Blood of the Covenant. Now, right off the bat, the Blood of the Covenant. This is a title. It's always a good exercise. Whenever you get a book, you see the title to start imagining. What the book might be about, and then you know you have these theories on the basis of the title, and then you read the book and you test your theories to see if your theories are true. So, so what do you think? Blood of the Covenant. What does that does that ring any bells in your mind? What do you think? Blood of the Covenant. What are we going to talk about today? Just take a wild guess. No right or wrong answers. Just theories. Put it out there and see if they how well they hold true after we get into it. Bill. George. Oh, George. I'm sorry. George? Uh, the best I can do is against uh, uh, the sins the blood of Christ washes into it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the blood of Christ, okay? You know, we hear it every Mass. The priest says, 
this is the blood of the new covenant, or this is the blood of my new covenant in my blood, something like that. And uh, so the blood of the covenant is the words that the Lord used um, at the Last Supper, and it's the blood of the new covenant. But we'll see where this comes from. The blood of the covenant, that phrase itself, comes from Exodus 24. And so that's what we're going to be focusing on today. And there are going to be two elements to uh, Exodus 24. There is the covenant meal, and that's the, that's the latter part. But that's preceded by the covenant sacrifice, and we're going to kind of go in reverse order. So we'll first look at the covenant meal, and then we'll return back to the earlier part of the chapter and look at the covenant sacrifice. So here, this is the covenant meal. Okay, now if you look, it's really based on Exodus uh, 24, verse 11. They beheld God and ate and drank. It's a pretty deep uh, passage, pretty deep one-liner. Now in this, this work of art, I actually can't tell you where... Uh, where it's from or who, who's the painter. Usually I try to get works of art that are very old and they're deeply embedded in the Catholic tradition. But I find as I'm doing these little image searches on Google for images, I find a lot of really, I have to say, really very well done and very interesting artwork from the Mormons. And uh, But I just, I always refuse to use them because so, I, just, I just don't know because there's always going to be some, some subtle thing in there that I'm probably missing that's going to be kind of non, not, not really authentically Christian, you know. But they do have a lot of very high quality artwork uh, and it's just spread all over the internet. So like any topic in the Bible that you want to find, if you, if you type it in, you'll find a Mormon painting. Uh, and and it's, they are very skillful. Um, so this one is not a Mormon painting, but I, I can't say it's it's deeply it's like a Catholic painting. I don't know who painted this or where it's from. I, my guess is it's not really a very old piece of artwork, but I thought it was pretty good. Does anybody um, recognize what this is describing? What part of part of Exodus? You can't see it very well. Is it a glare? Is it a glare? Yeah. It's so into the Transfiguration. Yeah. I mean, it's it's similar. It really is. It's very similar to the Transfiguration. We talked about the Transfiguration last time, I think. Mm-hmm. And in the Transfiguration, you got a mountain. You got Christ, who's shining from his from his his whole body is shining with the glory of God, and you've got his disciples around him. Well, this is a scene from Exodus 24, where 70 of the elders of Israel go up to Mount Sinai with Moses, and they behold God. And they eat and drink and they behold God. Okay? So, how God is displayed, it says that underneath his feet is a pavement as a sapphire. So, they kind of describe what's underneath. God is appearing in this kind of anthropomorphic form like we're used to at this point here in our study. And he's got, uh, the, the, the detail is of his feet and the kind of here down. <laughs> You know, which is interesting. It's just being modest. It's not trying to describe what that what the rest of the anthropomorphic figure look like, because uh, you know, it's uh, the Bible is against trying to make an image. It's it's helping us understand that ultimately, in the divine nature, God has no form or image. Okay, that's really what it's trying to do. And so, even when it comes to these kind of apparitions, um, it's there's a reticence about describing them. So we'll, we'll read that. But the painter fills in the blanks with his imagination, and he, he depicts this anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic form with this luminous light coming from his face, and it's very much reminiscent of the, of the Mount of Transfiguration. So why don't we, um, 
Why don't we start here with your with your sheets? And um, actually, I could use one of these sheets myself. So let's uh, let's do a little bit of reading here in Exodus. Let's go to Exodus chapter twenty. Uh, actually, let's see here. No, I think I'm wrong on that one. Let's go to Exodus 20. Yeah, let's go to Exodus 20. I'm right on that one. Mm-hmm. Exodus 20, verse uh, 18. <clears throat> and then why doesn't someone read from 18 just to the end of the chapter? Um, yeah, sure, Nancy. Go ahead. Okay. The fear of God. When the people witnessed the thunder and lightning the tempest blast, and the mountain smoking. They all feared and trembled. So they took up a position much farther away and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But let not God speak to us, or we shall die. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come to you only to test you and put his fear upon you, lest you should sin. Still the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the cloud where God was. The Lord told Moses, Thus shall you speak to the Israelites. You have seen for yourself that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make anything to rank with me, neither gods of silver nor gods of gold shall you make for yourselves. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and upon it shall sacrifice your holy cause and peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, in whatever place I choose for the remembrance of my name. I will come to you and bless you. That's good, actually. I just kind of wanted to uh, end off that uh, original account there that we started with, with the, the voice of God coming from heaven, the booming out, the ten words, the Decalogue. And so when, every, when the children of Israel hear that, that fear, fearsome, fearful voice coming from heaven, they um, they stand far off, and they say to Moses, "Well, you know, we're, we're, it's like we're afraid we're going to die. So how about you speak the word of God to us, but let's not have God speak. So you get the word from God and bring it to us. So they're they're happy to have Moses as a mediator, as almost separating them from God. Okay, and again, that's in that's in distinction to the new covenant where uh, Christ brings us close to God, and He doesn't separate us from God, but He brings us close to God." Because in Christ, it's the divine and the human coming together, unified in the incarnation. So um, so this is immediately after uh, the Ten Commandments are given. And then Moses goes... So Moses then is going to draw near to God on behalf of the people. And he goes up the mountain. Okay, And so Moses is on the mountain all the way up into uh, chapter 23.19. So if we... Work our way. We're just going to kind of skip over that section here. Twenty-three, nineteen. Basically, we're going to go right to. And in from that section where Moses goes up the mountain to twenty-three, nineteen, uh, we have. Let's see here. It says um, Moses goes back up the mountain, and God gives him the laws that will constitute the book of the covenant. So we've got kind of two different written things. We've got the tablets. Uh, with the Ten Commandments on them. But then we've got all of these other laws that come after that. And they're 
God gives them to Moses, and Moses comes down the mountain in chapter 24, and he writes them all down. And so it's like one, one sort of scroll, if you will, and that's called the Book of the Covenants. And then that's the sort of instrument or one of the items that he uses when God makes the covenant, the official covenant, with the blood between the children of Israel and God. So uh, now if we go Exodus 23, verse 20 to 33, right at the end of God giving Moses all of these laws that will constitute the book of the covenant, he says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place which I have prepared. This is 2320. I'm in verse 21. Give heed to him and hearken to his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. And so we see this angel again. And we looked a lot at the angel before, and I was kind of arguing that the angel was a prefigurement of Christ himself. And... Um, but ultimately, we have to remember that the angel... This is kind of my thesis. I think there are some exegetes who would disagree with me, but, but my, my take on it, along with the, uh, a sizable proportion of the just Catholic tradition, would say that this angel is a created being. Just a created being, but it's representing Christ. Okay? And I think that's kind of clear here. Okay, The angel go before you, guards you on your way. God is speaking as a distinct personage apart from the angel, referring to the angel in the third person. So I think it's kind of clear that there's not a real identification between God and the angel, but the angel can represent God. You say a created being. How do you differentiate between God being a creator of everything? And uh, how, how would you not expect it to be a created being? I guess some people would say something like... Um, well, I think if they were really sharp, what they would say is that it's God Himself using created sort of like particles in the air, you know, to sort of form an image. No, I understand that. Yeah. So then, but then it would be God. So then, this kind of image is not a person distinct from God. I understand that. But why wouldn't you expect it to be created? Or was the expectation that the angel is God? Yeah. Really? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so some people would say that this angel just represents God, that it's really just an apparition of some kind of form, uh, um, so, you know, this sort of created molecules, and they are put together to to form an image, and this image is a representation of God, as opposed to it actually being God. No, I mean they would say. Okay, I guess the two, I think the two smartest uh, approaches, there's probably a, a not so smart approach. The not so smart approach, you'd say, this, this angel, this angelic being is God, period, and we're not going to think about it any more than that. How do you see God then? You know, you get, it doesn't have, it doesn't have the ability to answer any of these questions. So that's, I don't think that's a very sophisticated way of answering, of addressing these passages. So I think the two best options you have before you are like this. Here's God, which you can't, he's incorporeal, uh, eternal, can't be reduced to time or space or anything. It's God. Okay, I'm representing him by my hand, but it's totally you can't image him. He's got no image. It's impossible. You can't even conceive of him. You can't you can't conceive of him. Okay, so here's God. Now on the other hand, you've got this apparition. The apparition properly consists of really just created molecules that are put together into a form to represent God. So that would be one take. The other take would be that in between God and this apparition is actually another person. 
a created intellect, an angel. Okay, and that angel is basically using this image to represent itself, but to represent God at the same time. See, so it's like an angel doing kind of a show for us, essentially. Okay, so it's either God doing the doing the doing the show, or it's an angel doing the show on behalf of God. You see, the kind of I think those are the two best you know interpretive options you've got. I would say that anything other than God would be doing God's will. Yeah. No, absolutely. So that would be assumed that the angel is is at the service of God. But the point being is that there's still this distinct intelligence, a distinct person, distinct from God, a created person. So that's what I meant by a created. You know, an angel is a created person, distinct from God, who's doing God's will, certainly, and 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 doing all this kind of special effects. You know, on on behalf of God and symbolizing God and foreshadowing Christ. So that was that was some of the things that were we've been getting into in the sessions past. And we delved into that very deeply when we talked about the three angels coming to visit Abraham, if you guys were present for that for that uh, session. So here's the talk about this angel here, and it seems to me this angel is a created being is a created angelic figure. Okay, that's that was my point here. Um, and uh, you, if you hearken attentively to his voice in verse 22 and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. But you see how the voice of the angel and then God's voice are kind of identified? If you hearken attentively to his voice and do all that I say, so it's God's voice and the angel's voice are being identified because the angel speaks on behalf of God and represents God. So uh, when my angel goes before you to bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and I will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. And then there's more of these blessings that go forth and... Uh, so forth and so on, more blessings for obedience. And then um, we come to Exodus 24. Uh, and how about we have someone read verses 1 to 2? Charlene, you want to do verses 1 to 2 in Exodus 24? Moses himself was told, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron <clears throat> with Nadim and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, you shall all worship at some distance. But Moses alone is to come close to the Lord. The others shall come, not come too near, and the people shall not come up at all with Moses. Okay, very good. So this is an important part here. What we've got is uh, <clears throat> we have a vocation. We have a summons. Moses is being called up to Mount Sinai along with Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and these other important figures, and then particularly the 70 elders of Israel. And the 70 elders of Israel, they represent, <clears throat> they represent Israel. And so they're being, there's a vocation on these guys. They're being called. They're being summoned up to the top of Mount Sinai. So does someone want to read Exodus 24, verses 3 to 4a? Now you've got to be real careful there. Tony, you want to be able to you want to do that? Three to four A. It's the first half of four. 
Stop. That's A. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so Moses then hears the words of God. He goes down to the, to the people. They agree that to do... Okay, so there's this deal that's being broken basically between God and the people. They agree to it. And then he writes down the words. And so that's the scroll. That's the book of the covenant that he, that he uh, pens. Okay? Now, uh, let's have someone read... 4b to 8. Because see, Moses rises in the early. That's uh, He rises up early. It's, it was narrative-wise, there's a distinction. There's a, you know, that verse is cut in half, basically. So, um, does anybody want to do 4b to 8? Go ahead, Charlie. <coughs> Alright. Uh, rising early the next day, he erected at the foot of the mountain an altar and twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. Then, having sent certain young men of the Israelites to offer the Holocaust and sacrifice young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord, Moses took half of the blood and put it in large bowls. The other half he splashed on the altar. Taking the book of the covenant, he read it aloud to the people, who answered, All that the Lord has said, we will heed and do. Then he took the blood and sprinkled it on the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words of His. Right. So that's where this this very important line comes from. This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. This is the blood of the covenant. So you have uh, this very interesting scene. You've got these young men who are these priests... Or are they not priests? So there's one, one question is, before the Levitical priesthood was established, which is not yet established, it's established um, you know, sort of officially after the sin of the golden calf. And I think there might be something to that, and some commentators might think that there might be something to that. It's after this great sin, this sort of primal sin of the sin of the golden calf that the Levitical priesthood is established. But there are priests before the institution of Levitical priesthood. And um, the how the priesthood worked before the Levites, it was basically the firstborn male, the firstborn son in the family. Everybody that, I, I think it's how it worked, is everybody that he uh, was the father of, he would be priest towards. So his fatherhood vis-a-vis these people established his priesthood towards them. And priesthood basically functioned like that. Um, so it had to do with the firstborn, it had to do with the eldest male member of the tribe, these sorts of things. I have to kind of work it out more specifically, but it had something to do with that. And I read an article recently, very interesting, they were showing how Christ's priesthood is grounded in his identity as the firstborn of creation, the firstborn of the dead. So Christ is called the firstborn multiple times all throughout the uh, New Testament. And so that his priesthood is, is um, grounded in his firstborn identity. And the point was that 
that this author was making, he could be right, I think he's probably right, I have to develop it more in my own thinking, but that the Levitical priesthood was instituted on account of this, the sin of the Israelites because they broke the covenant. And so it was like, it, was like uh, it came about as a result of their infidelity to the covenants. But then Christ reinstituted a priesthood that was more primal and prior to the Levitical priesthood when he came uh, um, in the order of uh, the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so there's, then there's all this stuff about the priesthood of Melchizedek. And it, it's very fascinating to say how the priesthood operates. Um, but certainly, though, before the Levitical priesthood, what you had is you had both the kind of secular authority and the religious authority was invested in one person. So Moses was a priest and a prophet and a king all together. But then after Moses established the nation of Israel, the priesthood went down one line. It was Aaron, Aaron and his sons. And then the kings, well, then what kind of prophets, Moses, I'm sorry, Moses, Joshua, and some other prophets. And then it was judges and then it was kings. So the secular authority went one route and the religious authority went another route and they were split up. There's kind of a separation of church and state, so to speak. And then in Christ, they kind of came together, but then transcended in a, in a way, state and everything. It was like a very transcendent sense. But because Christ is king and priest, it was like the kinghood and the priestship, or the kingship and the priesthood came back together again in Christ. You know, and that's where they were before the Levitical priesthood. So it's like Levitical priesthood was like a hiatus or a parenthesis in a bigger plan, pre-Moses and then at Christ onwards. I think there's something to that. I mean, I'd have to, we'd have to study that more, but I think there's probably something to that that would be interesting uh, to study. So you have this, this uh, really, I, I find this a very powerful scene. I always have, it's always stuck out in my consciousness for many years now as I read this. Um, they have these young men who come, oh, and so the point is the young men might be the firstborn. Okay, so some people think that they, these might be firstborn and they might be priests of some sort. In any event, you got these young men. They slaughter these animals. And uh, the slaughter is of uh, calves and bulls, uh, bovine creatures, so not, not lambs. So it's a huge quantity of blood, huge quantity of blood. And they fill, fill these basins full of the blood. So you've got an altar that's been made. Moses made an altar. And there's these 12 stones that represent Israel. And then you've got okay, and then you've got these basins of blood, and they basically represent two parties of the covenant. The altar represents the divine party, and the basins and that blood there is going to be for the people. Okay, so you've got the the Israelites and you've got God, and they're going to come into a covenant with each other. And so Moses takes half of the blood and he puts it in basins. Half of the blood he throws against the altar. All right, and then he reads the book to the people. The people consent. And then Moses sprinkles blood on the people. He says, this is the blood of the covenant by which you've been, uh, or the covenant that God has made with you. Now which blood is he sprinkling? The blood on the altar? Well, you know, it's difficult because you can't take the blood off the altar and put it on the people. Right. So, um, you know, basically, uh, it's the, the blood that he's sprinkling on the people is from the basins. Okay. But it comes from the same, it's supposed to be one blood. You know, it's supposed to be a unifying factor, you know, uh, event or rite. But in the beginning, was it was it blood, and then later we started using holy water for similar type things. Like in the holy water replaced the blood because they they're always talking about blood. Yeah. Actual blood. Sure. And then today we use holy water. 
well, if you want to, if the question would be, where does our usage of holy water come from? I think it, it ties more into baptism, our usage of. But but in the Old Testament, they used a lot of sprinkling of water as well uh, as blood. Oh, yeah, tons. There's a lots of ritual ablutions and immersions and baptisms really in the Old Testament. So. You know the way that you would you would trace it at a very like a raw sociological level, not like a deep theological level, but a raw sociological level is there was lots of ritual usages of water in the Old Testament, tons, sprinkling, bathing, drinking, immersing, immersing, washing, all this kinds of stuff. And then the Pharisees, the Pharisaic tradition, they did even more. Like they developed even more usage of water. And then John the Baptist came by, and he would have been moving in that same kind of tradition of water. And he had his baptism. And then Christ came, and his followers instituted. He and his followers instituted another baptism. So that's kind of how you trace it sociologically. So theologically, I don't know. There's, I think that our usage of the sprinkling of holy water goes more into the baptism. It's to remind us of our baptism. Um, okay, so then we got nine to eleven. So the the blood has been sprinkled, the sacrifice has been made, and then what happens? Verses nine and eleven. Um, Gary, do you want? Oh, you don't have your Bible with you. Rich, you wanna? Thank you, Rich. Go ahead. Moses then went up with Aaron, uh, Nadab, Abihu, and seventy elders of Israel. And they beheld the God, uh, the God of Israel. Under his feet there appeared to be sapphire tilework, as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not smite these chosen Israelites after gazing on God. They could still eat and drink. Very good. So very interesting. What do you I don't know, just a open question here. What's under this under this image's feet? What what's what is this thing under his feet? Sapphire says it's clear as sapphire. What it, what is your translate? Mine says pavement. What is your say? Tile work. Tile work. Okay, mine says pavement. It says tile work. What other translations? What do they say? It says a paved work of sapphire. Okay, paved work of sapphire stone. Okay. And it says it's as clear as what? What is it like in this? The sky. Okay. And I think that's probably the key to understanding what this is. Basically, it's like God standing over the heavens. He's in heaven. Okay, so they're actually by going up the mountain, it's like they're in heaven. All right, and uh, it's like you know, if you can imagine the heaven as like a dome, God standing on that. I mean, I think that's kind of what it is, and it's similar to the vision in Ezekiel. So if you if you study the first few chapters of Ezekiel, there's this very detailed vision of four cherubim who are moving in four different directions and they have like a chariot that they're riding and above them is a big firmament or dome. And over the dome is a throne and a figure seated on the throne and that's God. So it's like God is, you know, above the heavens. He's transcendent of the world. I think that's what the image is trying to show us. But it says they see God and they eat and they drink. And so they are fulfilling what that of their original vocation in 24.1. God said to Moses originally, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel. And then uh, in verses 9 and 11, we see them fulfilling that vocation. But in between the call and the fulfillment, we have a sacrifice. That's going to be basically the point of my whole study tonight, okay? So let's get into here. 
So in uh, 24, 9 through 11, we, we saw that. In my translation is that he helped God and ate and drank. This is slide three. Now we're in slide four. Okay. Uh, the Sinai vision and the eschaton. Just to remind you all, the eschaton, remember, is this? it's the end. It's the end of the world. It's that... It's not just the end, meaning in terms of limit, but also the end in terms of the goal. Okay, so the all of human history is heading somewhere. There's a goal, and the eschaton is that goal. That's where the economy of salvation is going to be totally fulfilled in the eschaton. So the Sinai vision and the eschaton. There's a relationship between the two, and the Jewish ancient Jewish interpreters began to see this and think about this. So the meal described in Exodus 24. Uh, became in later Jewish tradition an image of the messianic age, of the eschaton, of the eschatological age, which we as Christians believe is fulfilled primarily in Christ. So here's a quote from the Talmud, which is the Jewish sacred tome. Okay, so this is one of the ancient rabbis says, "In the world to come, and in, in Hebrew they, they call it the Olam Haba. Is the there's the Olam Haza, which is this world, and then the Olam Haba is the world to come, and we have that in our creed. Okay, so our Jewish, our, I mean, our, sorry, our Christian terminology is is totally it's, it's identical to the, how the Jews talk. Okay, so we believe in the life of the world to come, in the Olam Haba is how the Jews would, would say it. So they say in the world to come, in the Olam Haba, there is no eating or drinking. There is no eating or drinking, but the righteous sit with crowns on their heads. Feasting on the brightness of the divine presence, as it says, and they beheld God and did eat and drink. So that's a pretty awesome reading of this passage from Exodus, is that it's actually an image of the life of the world to come. The eating is merely symbolic. It's the real feast, the real eating is going to be the feasting on the vision of God, the beatific vision. So where we're headed, and I find this fascinating that within Judaism, there is, this is, you see it, this is the beatific vision, this is what we believe as Christians. Now, this is in contradistinction to um, Islam. Islam is very, very clear that no person ever, ever, ever will ever see God. God is completely, uns- you can't ever see God, not possible. And so heaven for Muslims is very corporeal. You eat, and then there's actually, I get there's 72 virgins for you, I guess. <laughs> Believe it or not, I mean, and I, I mean, I'm not. It sounds funny to us, and I think they really take it seriously. They're not joking. They're not joking. I mean, they really think that this is what it is. So they take it really, really seriously. But in any event, I mean, it sounds like it's a slander or something. Like I'm slandering Muslims, but they they really do believe that there's going to be 72 virgins for for these men to marry. I guess. So. Um, but you see, though, for their concept of heaven is very, it's kind of very uh, this worldly. But for Judaism and Christianity, they believe we believe that we're going to see God. Now, how is that possible? Well, there's hundreds and hundreds of years of theological reflection on how it could possibly be that we would see God. Now, last time we talked about seeing God in as much as God became a man. And so when you see, like uh, in the beginning of the first epistle of John, John says that which was from the beginning, what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have touched, and he's referring to Christ and the incarnation. So we really can say, if you see Christ, you're seeing God. That's totally true. But when we talk about the beatific vision, it's, it's more than that. 
It's actually much deeper. We believe that in the beatific vision, we will, with our intellects, not the eyes, because see, when you see Christ and when you see God in that sense, you're seeing God with your bodily eyes. And that's true. It's a totally true statement to say, I'm seeing God with my bodily eyes. The beatific vision is not with the bodily eyes. The beatific vision is the vision of the Blessed Trinity, and it's enjoyed by our intellects. And it's actually not possible unless God takes our intellects and lifts them up and basically transforms them in a degree that, I mean, he gives them a capacity that they can't have by nature. And I can't get into it because I'm not really sharp on it right now, but all I know is the beatific vision theologically is a very deep and profound part of our faith. And uh, like I said, hundreds and hundreds of years of reflection on the beatific vision. And in fact, very some very fine points about the beatific vision are what separate us from Orthodox Christians. So Orthodox and the Catholics, they kind of we can we can have some subtle differences on this point. Okay. But in any event, we believe that we will behold the Blessed Trinity uh, with our intellects, an intuitive intellectual vision. So you can't imagine it. It's completely apart from your senses. All right. So when you start talking about Trinity, you just got to throw all space, all images, all up, all down, all before and after. You got to throw it out the window. You can't. You can't deal with that. That's not how the Trinity is. It's to, It's eternal. It's not temporal. It's not spatial. And so the beatific vision is completely apart from senses, completely apart from imagination, and that is the supreme uh, beatitude or blessedness that we're destined for. That's our vocation. So just like Moses and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel had a vocation to go up the mountain to behold God and to eat, so we have a vocation to ascend to heaven and to behold God in the beatific vision. And this scene foreshadows that, and it's even within Jewish, Jewish tradition sees that. It's very interesting that the Jews, Christians are on the same page on this in this regard. Okay, so let's go to slide five. So now let's talk about the eating part. So we got this idea of the beatific vision, but what's the whole eating thing? Now we see the Jewish interpreters don't take it literally. Okay, so they believe that in the world to come there will not be eating. Okay, but they will feast on the vision of God. And we Christians believe the same thing. So St. Paul says in First Corinthians, he says that um, God, uh, the belly is for food. Uh, food, something I can't remember exactly, but essentially he says the belly is for food, but God will destroy the belly. Okay, meaning that he's going to it's going to come to an end, and that won't be. So we won't need to eat in our resurrected bodies when we enjoy the beatific vision. We won't need to eat. Now Christ, when he rose from the dead, he could eat. And, they get, and to show him that he was corporeal, he asked for some fish and he ate it. Okay, but his body is indestructible and it doesn't need food to replenish itself. So there's no need, absolutely no need to eat in our resurrected bodies. And there'll be complete, detach, perfect attachment, meaning we won't like have any kind of... We will love God so much that any created thing will, will be like, you know, that's nice, we like it, we enjoy it, but it, it, it just it pales in comparison. Uh, I read some theologians who say that in the world to come, the whole universe will be transformed. And, and, oh, by the way, for Lent, I want to do, if Father Leo will let me, I want to do uh, meditations on the four last things. So they go, uh, the four last things are death, judgment, hell, and heaven. And the happy thing ends it off. So heaven is the last one, all right? So it's a traditional thing for Lent to do the four last things, meditations on the four last things. And in the meditation on heaven, when I read the different theologians and authors and spiritual authors, 
they talk about the whole universe being completely transformed and us physically, our bodies dwelling in the heavenly places and then every once in a while coming back to earth to visit it and the earth being a complete paradisical state, like totally beautiful, everything just like paradise, like the Garden of Eden. But it's so beautiful, but yet we kind of come back and we visit and we're like, yeah, that's okay, but nothing compares to the beauty of heaven and beholding not really even heaven itself, but the vision of God himself, the vision of the Blessed Trinity in heaven. It's just that the kind of beatitude, the happiness, the joy, the blessedness that we will have in the beatific vision, nothing in this world will compare. The earth is beautiful as it is, a thousand million times more beautiful than it is right now. It will pale in comparison to the beatific vision. Because the creation is just a pale reflection or echo of the beauty that is God. And so that's what we're doing in this life. We're developing a capacity to appreciate God's beauty because we're going to be looking at it forever. We're going to be holding it, feasting on it forever. So let's talk more about feasts here. If you guys want to turn with me to Isaiah um, chapter 25. So the four last things are meant to motivate us to live good Christian lives because they're kind of where we're heading. And uh, the first, the first three scare scare you to do the right thing, and then the and then the last one it it encourages you positively. You know, you you anticipate the joy of heaven, and that's the idea. Yeah, Isaiah is right before Jeremiah. You want to go to Isaiah chapter twenty-five. So we see within the Jewish tradition how they read this event on Mount Sinai with the 70 elders, okay? But also in the Bible itself, the commentators believe that Isaiah chapter 25, uh, there's, there's a passage in there that we'll read, is, is sort of inspired by this event that happens on Sinai, okay? So in this slide here, in biblical times as well, Israel understood that the covenant meal in Exodus 24 was in some way a prophetic sign of a consummation which would take place in the end time. One of the apocalyptic texts of the book of Isaiah describes how in the last days God will again prepare a covenant meal on the mountain of the Lord. This time, though, the mountain is Mount Sinai. I'm sorry, is Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. But there's a relationship between the two. So if someone wants to read Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 8, it's a very beautiful and famous passage, and it's read at funerals oftentimes. Uh, Tony, you want uh, Joyce? Go ahead. On this mountain, on this mountain, the Lord of Hosts will provide for all peoples a feast of rich food and choice wines, juicy, rich food and pure choice wines. On this mountain he will destroy the veil that veils all peoples, the web that is woven over all nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. The reproach of his people he will remove from the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken. On that day it will be said, 
Behold our God to whom we look to save us. This is the Lord for whom we looked. Let us rejoice and be glad that he has saved us. Very good. So that's an awesome, beautiful text. And it says, Behold, this is our God. And so there's a vision of God, but it's taking place on a mountain. And it's involving, very interestingly enough, more than just Israel. It's involving all the peoples of the earth. So there's a, there's a prophecy here of the ingathering of all the Gentiles into the covenant people of God. So this is a covenant meal that's taking place, but it involves all the peoples of the earth, not just the nation of Israel. And what's destroyed? Death. Death. Death is destroyed. And so if you can think about the, the uh, 70 elders, they're beholding God, and what are they surprised about? They're, they can behold God and what doesn't happen? They don't die. So there's almost an overcoming of death that takes place, okay? And uh, yeah, and and the death is is conceived of as the veil that covers all peoples. It's a pretty, a pretty um, awesome image of death, but yet it's been destroyed and it's swallowed up. Death is swallowed up, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces as well. So suffering as well as death is, will be gone. And uh, yet there's a meal though because they're feasting on choice flesh and choice wine. Okay? Now, it's not literal. Alright? Well, maybe it is. In some senses, maybe it's not. I mean, it's it's uh, something to think about. Okay? You can't take it in a, a grossly literal sense. Let's just say that. Okay? Um, Alright, let's go to the next. Uh... So, one of the things that we see here in this covenant meal in Isaiah 25 is a universalization of the covenant. So it's not just Israel, but it's all the peoples coming together. Now, there was early Jewish reflection on this, and this is how the this is how the, the rabbinical mind works. So they say to themselves like this. This would be how they reason. They'd say, okay, there are 70 elders that are called up to the mountain. Now, why 70? So then the question would be asked, why 70? Why the number 70? And then what will happen will be this. Someone will say, well... If where does the number seventy appear in other passages of the Bible? And so wherever it appears in other passages of the Bible, you can link them together. Seventy times seven. Sure. Number seven is all over the place. It is. It is all over the place. Yeah, there's stuff in the Gospels. But remember, we're Jewish right now. We're rabbis, so we don't read the New Testament. Oh, that's right. I don't believe in the New Testament. Yes. The city's trying to plow, and there's a couple of vehicles blocking the way. Why Suzuki and uh, the gray Honda on the far side out front? Any, any, uh, on the far side on the Main Street. Yeah. They want to push back. It's, uh, in front of the church. On the entrance. In front of the church. Right in front of the church on the Boyle Center side. Oh. Not you? Nobody? Nobody's part of the road. We walked. Somebody's from the, uh, thank you. Alright, thank you. There was people going into church. Maybe they're in there. Oh, it's the choir. Hey, excuse me, sirs. Yeah. Uh, you know, there probably actually it's people in the church who are practicing choir. That's our path. Oh, it's one there. Yeah. No, 
Okay, so if we want to limit ourselves, you're right. In the New Testament, there's tons of references. That would be an obvious one where Christ talking about seven days of creation. Certainly, that's good. Yeah, Um, but seventy though. Well, it's multiple. They're multiple. That's multiple. Sure, sure. I mean, yeah, you can do it, and then and then that would be another way of talking about. Well, so how many seventy? So how do you get? How do you turn seven into seventy? You got to multiply it by what? Ten. Times ten. Well, where does ten appear in the Bible? Ten commandments. So you know that's what how the Jewish people would think. I also think too, there's ten that God creates the world with ten sayings. If I'm not mistaken, He speaks ten times. Ten times. God speaks ten times, and that's how He affects creation. So there could be something about creation, maybe a new creation taking place here. Okay, so that that would be a way of talk thinking about it. Also, but this is how also the rabbis uh, thought. If you go to uh, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 10, it's the table of nations. And it recounts all the descendants of the three sons of Noah. And there are 70 nations that are denoted. And so they say, so then how they think to themselves, okay, Sinai, this whole event, is not meant just for Israel, but it's meant for the whole world, all the Gentiles. Okay, so there's a universalization of the covenant. Even the rabbis were thinking like this, okay? And so there's a there's a legend or a tradition that when God spoke the Ten Commandments from Sinai, he spoke it in seventy languages. Okay? Now what does this remind us of as Christians? Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, okay? You've got all of these languages that are taking place on the day of Pentecost. And remember we talked about how Within Jewish tradition, again, that's not clear in the scriptures, but in Jewish tradition, Pentecost happened on the on the day of the church, and I mean when the Ten Commandments were given. On that Pentecost was the feast that uh, was that commemorates the giving of the Ten Commandments. Um, also, here's another number that gets tied in. What's the Greek Bible called that I've been talking about? The Septuagint. That's a Latin word that means seventy. Okay, because the tradition is that there were 70 Jewish scholars who translated it. Now, who did they translate it for? Why would the Jewish scholars want to translate it into Greek? What was the lingua franca of the world at the time? Greek. It was Greek. So Greek was a medium by which the Torah would be spread over the whole world. All right? Well, where did the Latin? Where did the Latin... And I mean, the, why that it's called Septuagint? No, Latin. What, what, language. Language. I think I think probably with so okay so how it worked actually it's very interesting so Latin was spoken at the time of Christ Latin was spoken in more like the upper classes in the Roman Empire it was not the common language okay Greek was but by the end of the second century after Christ Latin started to become more like pretty much the common language but in the West not in the East okay. And so all the Christians in the West would have originally been speaking Greek with each other. So when St. Paul writes to the Romans, he writes in Greek. And he's speaking Greek to them. And the Greek, all, all the Romans are speaking Greek, the common man. Okay, uh, The soldiers may, and the upper class people, maybe they spoke Latin, and that's why in Christ, the titulus that hung over Christ's head, it was in three languages. It was Aramaic, Hebrew, I'm sorry, Aramaic, uh, Latin, and Greek, or Greek and Latin. Okay, So... Uh, so in, in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, the people in the West spoke Greek, but eventually they started speaking Latin. Okay? Now at that point, they need a Bible in Latin. So they translate the Bible into Latin. But what do they translate from? 
They translate from the Greek, even the Greek Old Testament. So they take the Septuagint and they translated it into Latin. All right. So it's kind of a translate translation of a translation effect. Okay. And that's why Saint Jerome in the fourth century came by and he wanted to go to the Hebrew and translate the Bible into Latin directly from the Hebrew because all of his people in the West were reading various translations in Latin that were made on the basis of the Greek and he wanted to go to the original Hebrew. That was his whole motive. Okay. So you have this kind of tradition in the West that's sort of a fusion between Greek and Latin and it would, be, it would make sense that people would be referring to these, the Greek Bible and with the Latin terminology and whatnot. Okay, so It's basically like the Western Latin reception of the ancient Greek Christian tradition. Is how you would how you would frame it. Okay, so uh, let's go to the next slide here. Um, Isaiah chapter two. This is a very important uh, passage. I can tie this into New Testament stuff all over the place, but we don't have a ton of time here. So um, right in the beginning, of Isaiah chapter two. So this is the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Now whenever you see the prophet use the word latter days, that means the eschaton. It's an eschatological phrase. It's talking about the end. It doesn't mean like 100 years from now or 200 years from now. It means at the end of history. Okay. So it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, that's Mount Zion, Right, shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. Now, uh, what do you think? Do you think that's literal? Or do you think we should read that in another sense? Mount Zion is going to be established as the highest mountain. In, in, what's the highest mountain we know of? Right? Was it Mount Himalayas or something? Himalayas? Tibet, okay. So you've got some really high mountains that are probably like what? I don't know, 13,000 13, feet high? And Hawaii is the, is the tallest one? Okay. measure from the sea level, yeah. So uh, my point, I mean, I I'm, I'm probably shouldn't have asked the question, but the point is you shouldn't take this literally, okay, because it's just kind of absurd to imagine... Jerusalem with this mountain that's higher than the Himalayas or whatever. Okay, the the point is, is the Mount Mount Zion with the temple is going to be the most important mountain in the world. Okay, and all the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and shall say, "Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law." and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So forth and so on. It continues on. But see, here we have all of the Gentiles and they're streaming to the mountain of the Lord, just like we read in Isaiah chapter 25 with all the peoples having this covenant feast on this Mount Zion. Okay, But they're streaming to the mountain of the Lord. The law of the Lord is going to go forth. Okay, Now, where did we see before in all the lessons past the temple? What's the temple? What's the, what's the eschatological fulfillment of the temple? How is the temple fulfilled ultimately, eschatologically, in the in the in the time that we live in? Created again. Created again in what? In how so? Created again. 
in three days of who? Christ. Christ. So Christ's body is the temple, right? The church is the temple. So all of these Old Testament passages that show this eschatological stage of history, and they show this temple that's being exalted, and the temple is the most important part of the world, it's a prophecy of the church. Okay, it's not literally a temple that's going to be rebuilt. It would really, in a certain sense, it would be an insult to God's to Christ to try to, to to attempt to rebuild the temple. And there are many. There are there's a a group of Jewish people right now in Israel, in the state of Israel, who every year they have a big truck with a cornerstone that weighs ten tons on it, and they drive up to the Temple Mount. And the Israeli guards are waiting with their machine guns. It's like a ritual they do every year. And they're like, hi, hi, uh, you know, Joe, hi, Mike, how you doing this year? We're doing good. Okay, turn around, go home. And they, they're trying to make a statement because what they're saying is that they want to rebuild the temple. But who's got the temple right now? Who's built on it? The Muslims. The Muslims have it, okay. The What's Mosque that? Omar, the Al Aqsa Mosque. What is that stone on the rock that they have? Which one? In the dome. You're confusing two different things here. You got the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, okay, and it's that's supposed to be the rock on which Isaac was sacrificed, okay. It very well might be too. It could be you know Mount Moriah on which, and so the Dome of the Rock was built over that sacred spot. You're thinking of Mecca. It's in Saudi Arabia, different place. So you're thinking of Mecca. And they have the Kaaba. It's their 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 most sacred place is the Kaaba. It's this temple that's black temple and there's a stone in it and that's the one where they do the circle around it. It's kind of a separate thing. It's not really a biblical tradition something else. So, but, but the Dome of the Rock though is built supposedly over where Isaac was sacrificed or was it, you know, Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac. So, um, point is you have the Jewish people, they want to rebuild the temple. Uh, 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 it's, now, if they do, ha- if it happens, it's going to be a bad thing. Okay, we don't want the temple rebuilt because it's basically an erasing of what God did through Christ. It's an insult. Okay, because the temple, all that the, the the last day, the end day temple is prophesied in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the church. So, um, and so then, who are all these people coming to this temple? It's the Gentiles coming into the church. It's the church consisting of all the Gentile nations. It's us. It's you and me. Here we are, we're being written about in Isaiah chapter 2. It's amazing to think about. So, uh, then we have Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. If you want to turn there quickly. Now we get into the New Testament here. We show how the, uh, we can see how the New Testament draws upon these, these prior Old Testament themes. Now, remember last class we had um, Mount Sinai and we had, I was, I was kind of arguing that it was really in a certain sense Christ Himself that gave the law on Mount Sinai and that that was a foreshadowing of the Gospel, the new law that will be promulgated on another mountain in Galilee. The Sermon on the Mount. So we refer to it as the Sermon on the Mount. So we have... The Gospel of Matthew, it starts off with the basically Jesus' inaugural address as the new Moses, and he gives the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7. Okay? Now, in chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus speaks about, he gives the new law, but he doesn't really speak very 
in depth or at least clearly about the new law being for non-Israelites. But in chapter 8, we can see how the new law is destined for non-Israelites. We have the story of the leper. Uh, We're going to skip over that. And then we have the story of the centurion's servants. Now the centurion, was he Jewish or was he non-Jewish? He's not Jewish. He's a Roman... He was a Roman uh, soldier, okay? And the Roman soldier's got a um, servant who's sick. And so he, he sends a messenger to Christ and says, could you come and heal my servant? And, and Jesus is going to go off. And then he gets stopped. And they say, oh, no, no, no. And what does the centurion say? We say it in Mass before we receive communion. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy that you should come to, under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And so then Jesus marvels and he says in response, Matthew 8, uh, 11. And let's see here. Uh, how about we have um, someone read verses 10 through uh, 13? This is uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 10 through 13. Um, Alice, you want to try that? I can try. Okay. <laughs> When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Amen, amen, I say to you, and no one in Israel have I found such faith. I say to you, many will come forth from the east and from the west and will recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the banquet of the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom will be driven out into the outer darkness, where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth, grinding of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, You may go as you have believed. Let it be done for you. And at that very hour, his servant was healed. Very good. Okay, so here's Jesus now who's just got done promulgating the new law in the Sermon on the Mount. And he comes down, and now we start to see that the new law is destined not just for the Jewish people, or maybe even really primarily for the Gentiles and not the Jewish people in a certain sense. We believe it's a part of a very deep part of our Catholic tradition. It's in the Scripture that the Jewish people will believe in Christ uh, before the second coming of Christ. It seems kind of hard to believe, you know, but it's going to be. I mean, we believe it's part of our faith. So, uh, in a certain sense, it's like the New Testament is really almost for the Gentiles and not the Jews because it's, it's hard to really believe that the Jews would all suddenly come to believe in Jesus because they're so strong in their own religious tradition. Uh, and this text kind of agrees with that in a certain sense. He says the children of the, of the kingdom will be cast out and then many will come from east and west and join Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the banquet of the kingdom of, of heaven. And so he's talking about this eschatological banquet, this eschatological covenant meal that we're seeing in Isaiah chapter 25 and these other passages. Okay. Um, so now we're on slide 10. And then we have, uh, too bad we can't read it. I don't think we've got time, but we w- it would be really good to read John chapter 6. Now, in the Gospel of John, it's very interesting because we have, in the first three Gospels, we have the Last Supper and the words of institution, the Eucharist, are clear. Now, in the Gospel of John, the Last Supper is there, but the words of institution, the Eucharist, are not. They're missing. In a certain sense, they're missing. But... Nonetheless, the Gospel of John highlights the Eucharist probably in an even stronger way than the first three Gospels because of chapter 6. Okay, So if we read chapter 6, you have the story of Christ's multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. 
and it's when he feeds the 5,000. Now that story is recounted in, the, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but in John, it's made really, really clear that it's almost an image of this eschatological banquet we've been talking about and also has to do with the Eucharist itself. So, for example, in John chapter 6, verse 2, it says explicitly that Jesus went up onto the mountain. Okay, so we have this mountain again. All right? The mountain that's talked about probably, you know, in all these other passages of the Old Testament. And then we have in the verse verse 5, Jesus it says, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he saw a multitude coming. Now, you know, it's a little, maybe some people might think it's a stretch, but the commentators I read, and I think it's plausible, that this is an allusion, again, to this eschatological covenant meal that will take place on this mountain. And it's uh, if we look at Isaiah chapter 60 now, flipping around all over the place I know. I'll just read uh, chapter 60 in general, but then I want to draw your attention to verses 4 and 6 in particular. Arise, shine, for your light has come. This is Isaiah 60. Yeah. Isaiah 60, right right at the very end. Yeah. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. I mean, we've got images, I've got images in my mind of Moses' face shining, of the Mount of Transfiguration, Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration with His whole body luminous. Okay, here are the Gentiles coming to Jerusalem, coming to Mount Zion because of the light, because of the glory. Lift up your eyes round about. So that's the illusion, possibly in this Gospel of John when it says Jesus lifted up his eyes and he saw a multitude coming. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from far and your daughters shall be carried in their arms. So you see all of this, uh, if we can, if in fact this multiplication of loaves and fishes is an illusion to this passage in Isaiah, the people who are fed with the 5,000, the 5,000 people who are fed with the loaves, these are the sons coming to Christ to be fed. Uh, then you shall see and be radiant in verse 5, and your heart shall thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. So now we've got, it's the Gentiles. Very clearly the Gentiles are bringing all of their wealth to Jerusalem, to Israel. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. Now remember, we just got done celebrating Christmas and the Epiphany. And the Epiphany season with all the light, we've got all of these light themes taking place. And it's all tied back into here. And then who is the... You know, we got... um, It says the kings of Sheba... Young camels of Midian, they shall bring gold and frankincense. You know, we've got the we got the Magi, okay, coming to Christ, and Christ, and there's the lights, the the star of Bethlehem. I mean, it's just like I can't even. There's so many like interconnections between all these images, you can't even keep track of them all. 
you know. Um, all the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will glorify my glorious house. And it goes on and on and on. Now, uh, a sort of a to help us understand how we should interpret the Bible, it's important to understand that um, if, when we read the prophets, we've got to be able to identify when they're speaking about the eschaton. That's probably one of the most important things. So, they're not. This prophet is not prophesying about something that's going to take place a hundred years from his time or fifty years from his time. Sometimes they would prophesy those things, but when you, whenever you see the prophets talk about these grand vistas, these 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 kind of cosmic scenes of nations upon nations being involved, it's always eschatological. It's always about that end goal, that destiny, that supreme consummation of human history. Okay, now when they prophesied about that end time, that sort of omega point towards which all human history is headed, when they prophesied about that, they did it in the terms that they were familiar with. They did it in terms of things that they experienced in their day. So, in terms of the temple, in terms of Gentile nations from Sheba and all Midian, camels. Okay. So they envisioned all of it in terms of sacrifices. That's what they were familiar with, and the prophets prophesied and portrayed the eschaton in those current, present things that were present to them. So it was it was through the present they were reaching forward to something that was almost unimaginable. And they were using their present experience to reach out towards that almost unimaginable omega point. And so to interpret it, Properly, we can't be too literal about it. And of course, with the help of the New Testament and the coming of Jesus Christ, we can now look back on the Old Testament prophecy and we can really figure it out a lot better than we would have otherwise. Okay, So we can see that all of these nations, it's really talking about the Gentiles coming to the church. That Jerusalem here is really the church. That the temple is really the church the body of Christ, that the sacrifices that are going to be accepted is really the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the Eucharist, the sacrifice of the Mass, and all of the Gentiles coming into that and being gathered together, that's us. That's the that's fulfilled in the Gentiles coming into the New Covenant. So that's just a, it's an important way of how to, how to interpret the Old Testament. Um, so then we have this going, returning back to John chapter 6, um, the event of the multiplication of the loaves as recounted in John 6 is a prophetic foreshadowing of the eschatological covenant meal or banquets. Now, we got the Eucharist. Okay, The Eucharist in the eschatological banquet. And yet the event of the multiplication of the loaves as recounted in John 6 pertains to the Eucharist as well. And this is, the, this is the chapter of the famous passage where Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you shall have no life in you. And so it's, it's very Eucharistic. And in fact, in, John, uh, in chapter 6, verses 11 and 23, the word Eucharist is actually used. Okay? In Greek, the word Eucharist means uh, thanksgiving, to give thanks. Okay? And so Jesus, he takes the loaves in verse 11, and having given thanks, the Greek word is is the word Eucharist. Okay? And then after he does the multiplication of the loaves, he has the, the miracle where he walks on the water, but then afterwards, the next morning, the people are looking for him, and that's when he gives the famous discourse that's very Eucharistic. 
And he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. But the way that the evangelist talks about the place where he did the multiplication of the loaves is he says, the place where they ate the bread, the Lord having given thanks. And again, use the word. If you're reading in the Greek, it's the word Eucharist is right there. So it's in the Greek, it's pretty clear. There's a very strong sense that John chapter 6 is dealing with the Eucharist. So we have this eschatological banquet that's going to take place. And this multiplication of the loaves is a, and, and everybody's feasting on the loaves and the fishes, it's a prophetic foreshadowing. It's a hint of that final eschatological banquet. But then so is the Eucharist. The Eucharist itself points towards that final consummation. And that's what we celebrate every Mass. Okay? Uh, so we're going to get deeper into that here. So just a little bit of a recap. Think about all the mountains that we've gone through. The Garden of Eden, we, we learned from Ezekiel that that was on a mountain. Mount Ararat, where Noah did his sacrifice. Mount Moriah, where Isaac was sacrificed, or about to be sacrificed. The Temple Mount, the same thing. All the temple sacrifices. Mount Zion, Isaiah chapter 25 Mount Zion, the, the mountain where all the nations are going to come for this eschatological banquet. That, that mountain upon which the, the shroud of death will be taken away. The mountain where Christ delivered the sermon. So you got the sermon on the mount. The mountain where Christ multiplied the loaves could be the same mountain. The Mount of Transfiguration, that's Mount Tabor. Mount Calvary, where the cross, where Christ's sacrifice took place. So you have all of this theme about mountains taking place. They're all interwoven, all together. So like in, you know how I use the metaphor in one of the lessons where what's amazing is that in each one of our cells in our body, our entire genetic code is contained. So the information that's relevant to our entire body is contained in every single part. So the whole is in the part. Okay? And, uh, and of course the part is in the whole. So there's this interpenetration of all of this stuff. And that's how the scriptures work. So if you go and you just start meditating on all those mountains, you'll see how they're all they all interpenetrate. They're all they're all connected, and that's kind of what we've been doing throughout the course of this um, uh, session or class. Now, if we go to the last few chapters of the Bible in the Apocalypse, it kind of all comes together. You've got the marriage supper of the Lamb, and you've got. Um, the beatific vision. Okay, so let's uh, draw your attention to. Let's go to the Apocalypse. It's the last book of the Bible, um, chapter nineteen, verse nine. It'd be nice if we could read these chapters together, but we don't. We don't really have the time. Yeah. Yeah, Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible. So if you go to chapter 19, verse 6. It 
So this is the consummation. This is the eschaton that we're looking at here. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty thunder peals, crying, Hallelujah! Or Alleluia! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. So this is the ultimate consummation. This is the union of the church and Christ. It was granted her to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And then in verse 9, And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So you have the feast. This is the eschatological feast, that eschatological banquet, that covenant meal that we've been seeing from from Exodus all through Isaiah that was been hinted at uh, in John chapter 6 and that Christ referenced in Matthew chapter 8. And this is it. It's being portrayed to us in metaphorical terms as a marriage between God and His people. And uh, so now we're going to tie it into the Eucharist. Okay? Now we we talked about, remember the first half of, we're going to go back to Exodus chapter 24. And we talked about the the covenant sacrifice. Now we're going to talk about, I'm sorry, we talked about the the covenant meal. Now we're going to go back and talk about the covenant sacrifice, okay? And we're going to return to that phrase that I brought up many times here. Behold... The blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you. Exodus 24, 8. So what's very clear is when you read the Last Supper, the accounts of the Last Supper, especially in Matthew and in Mark. It's not so clear in Luke. But in Matthew and in Mark, Christ says, this is my blood of the covenant. This is, so that phrase, blood of the covenant, shows up. And in the Greek, it's tohaima teis diathekes, identical to the Septuagint. Remember the Greek Bible, the Greek Bible's translation of Exodus 24:8, tohaima teis diathekes, the blood of the covenant. And actually, when you do a word search in the Bible and you want to look for the phrase "blood of the covenant," it shows up only in one place in the Old Testament, and that is Exodus 24:8. So undoubtedly. That's the main text. That Old Testament text is what's lying behind Christ's words of institution. Okay. Now we're drinking from the <clears throat> the blood of the altar rather than the basins. Uh, no, no, I know there's probably something to it. Really, honestly, it's, if you think about that for a while, I'm sure there's a lot to it. I mean, really, all this stuff is very detailed. You could d- delve your mind into it. It would take me a pretty few hours probably to think of that. You know. Because it's in a chalice as opposed to a basin. Yeah, I mean, look, think about that. I don't know what you're going to come up with, but think about that, really. Okay, Exodus 24, uh, the covenant meal is preceded by the covenant sacrifice. Remember, we've been talking about the covenant meal that took place on the mountain, but before the mountain, it was the covenant sacrifice. It's really, really strong strong proof that the Mass is a sacrifice. Okay? So, Sarah, were you going to raise your hand? I was going to say it's 821. Are we going to stop and talk? 
I know. I wish you could hear. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see if we can we can at least we'll see how people are feeling here. So, uh, in Exodus 24, the meal is preceded by the covenant sacrifice. So, also the Eucharist communion is preceded by a sacrifice, the Mass. Very strong implication that the Last Supper is a sacrifice. Okay, it's not just um, it's not just a sacred meal, but it's also a sacrifice. It's both, just because it goes back to Exodus 24. You got meal and sacrifice. Meal being preceded by sacrifice. So this is what uh, Christ says. Um, actually, I think these are the words of consecration that the priest says. For this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. Now, at the elevation in the Mass, we say, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold Him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. So the supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb, is that eschatological supper. It's that eschatological banquet that we've been talking about. It goes through Exodus 24, Isaiah 25 especially. Okay? And then also we talk about the beatific vision. So we're saying, Behold, behold, behold. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold Him who takes away. So it's repeated twice. There's a real emphasis on seeing. And what's really amazing is that we're still... We have yet to arrive at that eschatological banquet. But the Eucharist is a real anticipation of it. But we're not there yet. There's still veils of faith. Okay, In that day, we won't have faith. When we see God directly, we'll, we'll be walking by vision and not by faith. Faith will be gone. The three theological virtues are faith, hope, and love. When we arrive at the beatific vision, faith will be no more, hope will be no more, because there will be nothing more to hope for. We've arrived at it. But what will remain? Love. Love. And then that will be a covenant of love that will be eternally consummated in heaven. That's why it's the greatest of all. That's why it's the greatest of all, exactly. Love is our destiny, basically. And faith is the means to it. So you need both, but... There is a certain priority to, to love because it's the kind of it's the goal and it will never pass away. Uh, the problem with this is in this world we need faith, and so people say like, oh, you know, no, faith is not important. All you really need is love. You see, Jesus came just to preach love. Uh huh. Hold on, you actually can't have love without faith, okay? Because it's a divine love <clears throat> that's given to us on the basis of our faith. It's a supernatural reality, and we need faith to to get to that that point. But it is true, though, that love is the more primary uh, of the virtues. How does grace fit into it? Um, grace is given to us, and then the three theological virtues are given with us along with grace. So they're all... It's all one package, yep. So when grace is given, remember we were talking about the deification, sanctification, all of that stuff, right? All of that grace, along with grace, is given the three theological virtues. So actually, even with an infant, when an infant is baptized... The infant is given grace, and the three theological virtues are given along. So the, the, the infant actually has faith, hope, and charity in a virtual state. They can't exercise it, but it's, in a, it's there habitually. Now, I shouldn't say virtual. It's probably that's too weak. It's there habitually. Okay, so they're not exercised. The, the infant can't make an act of faith because its reason hasn't developed yet, but um, uh, it's there habitually. So and then when it grows up, it can, you know, if it maintains a state of grace... So the Mass 
as a representation of the sacrifice of Calvary is a sacrifice that takes place within the context of a vocation to the communion of the beatific vision. Think about this. Okay, Let's go back to Exodus 24. We had the vocation, Moses come up to the mountain. And then they, they actually come up and they eat and they see. But what happens in between? It's a sacrifice. Sacrifice is happens in the context of a vocation to the beatific vision. All right? This one single sacrifice, meaning the sacrifice of Calvary and the sacrifice of the Mass are the same sacrifice. One's the only difference between them is their manner of presentation or their manner of uh, by which they're offered. Okay, it's the same sacrifice because it's Christ. Christ on Calvary, Christ in the Mass, same sacrifice, same object, sacrificial object, okay? Their manner of being sacrificed is different. One's bloody, one's unbloody, okay? But it's the same one single sacrifice. The one single sacrifice makes grace and glory and thus the beatific vision possible. Eucharistic communion is a real sacramental anticipation of the eschatological banquet, the feast of the beatific vision. So that's what we're doing at the Mass. That's how deep and profound the Mass is. I don't know about you guys, but honestly, I could take these texts and these thoughts and I could sit there for about eight hours and just think about this. You know? I mean, it's this is really amazing. What's going on during Mass, it's so far beyond our imagination and our senses and our comprehension. All right? And we can only apprehend it by faith and we need to cultivate it. We need to meditate on the Word of God and let the Word of God break open our minds and our hearts so that we can appreciate the spiritual realities that are, that are happening. And it's really funny because, I mean, faith is so transcendent. It's a real mistake, guys, to, to base everything on feelings and experience. Uh, you know, you hear sometimes people say, well, like, it's my experience that, and according to my experience, and, you know, you really can't challenge my experience. We walk by faith and not by sight and not by experience. Faith is beyond experience. I mean, uh, what's crazy, you know, just St. John Vianney said, if a priest knew who he was and what he was doing during Mass, he would die if he really understood what he was doing. And, you know, you can get priests like this priest, and he's tired in the morning. He gets 7 o'clock in the morning, and he's like, he wants his coffee, and he's smelling <laughs> bacon and stuff like that. And it's crazy, because it's like what is actually happening is so far... I mean, it's so far better and beyond anything else. And here we are, here I am, groggy and just, you know, and and, and those who come, you know, dragging the kids into Sunday Mass, I don't want to go to Mass! Ah! It's like, if they know, if they only knew what was going on, you know? Remember when Jesus came back and made the breakfast on the beach? Yeah? There we go. There we go. Okay. Um... I get into the Sanctus here as well. Uh, and then the significance of the blood. There's actually quite a, a bit more we could have gone over. Um, do you guys want to take maybe 10 minutes? Go a little bit over time? Take about 10 minutes? Talk a little bit? Is that, is that okay? So what do you think? Any, any thoughts? Any final? Gary, any thoughts? Yeah. I, I really, I, I think so too, and it's this is this is amazing stuff, and and it just you read a few commentaries, you read the Bible, and it just it's all there, you know. It's really amazing, George. All the references of the Gentile copy. Yeah. How Peter had such a hard time with How come Peter did? Yeah, you would thought that he he would have been aware of. Yeah. Sure. No, that's a that's a great thing, and especially because Christ said, Christ said to him. 
uh, in Matthew 28 with the Great Commission, go to all nations and preach the gospel. I think how to explain it. So what George is referring to is in the book of Acts, um, maybe maybe chapter 9, I think, uh, Peter is on the rooftop. There's a, there's a Roman centurion uh, by the name of Cornelius, I believe, and an angel comes to him, and this centurion is a God-fearing man, and he practices kind of a form of Judaism as much as he can, being a Gentile. He's not circumcised. And he's a, so he's a righteous man, he's a man of prayer. Je, uh, angel comes to him and says, go to Peter, and Peter's going to tell you words by which you and your whole household will be saved. So this guy goes and he hunts down Peter. Peter, meanwhile, is on the roof, and he's getting ready to eat. Talk about eating, right? It's noontime, it's lunchtime, and he, he falls into an ecstasy, into a vision. And he has a vision of a sheet, like a, a picnic blanket almost, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And in the sheet are all of these creepy, crawly critters that uh, are non-kosher. Okay, And there's a voice from heaven that says, Peter, rise, kill and eat. And Peter says, you know, nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. Right? Is, that, is this the story that you're referring to? I'm thinking about, in general, all, Peter being a man of the, the, the Old Testament. Yeah. And having the Old Testament prophets come in and say, Peter, rise, kill and eat. Yeah. Of the Gentiles coming. Yeah. And uh, the people of the world coming yeah. to Israel. Right. Why did he have such a hard time? Well, what you, when, I think what I'm trying to get you to identify is when you say Peter had a hard time, what are you thinking of? He, when he, uh, him and Paul. Oh, the dispute in Galatians that's recounted in Galatians? Yeah. Okay. I think um, that probably when Christ uh, gave the apostles the commission to go spread, spread the gospel everywhere, they probably imagined that the the, the Gentiles would would kind of come into Judaism, you know? Okay, so so they knew that the Gentiles would come, but but they thought probably while they would be circumcised, they would be okay. So that was kind of the assumption. That was sort of the thinking. And so what happens is little by little it becomes clear to the apostles, to Paul, to Peter, and to others that that's not the case. That in fact God is going to include the Gentiles into the covenant without circumcision, without any of the sort of signatures of Judaism. Okay? And when that became clear, that they were like, oh, okay, alright, so that's okay, that's the case. Now there probably was factions within the church, remember because it's all Jews at the time, Jewish the Jewish Christians, who would resist that. And there's all different kind of understandings, you know. And so Peter might have been doing kind of a pastoral thing. There's another question like, okay, so if you're Jewish and you receive the gospel, do you stop observing the law? So, you know, it's not an easy question. I mean, that was a... Yeah, he had to. So this was, and it was huge debate. I mean, it wasn't really super clear. There was lots of room for arguments and debate and, and fighting and splitting and all this stuff, okay? So um, I think, in, you know, you might have had Peter, his, his understanding was kind of like, well, there's a hardcore group of these guys and we're kind of keeping all the factions together and like I don't really bring up the issue with these people yet because they're kind of not quite ready for it and if they saw me eating with Gentiles 
it would go bad for me and my relations with them. And at this point, it's a battle I don't want to fight. It's a, he's a kind of a pastoral call that he made. So they show up, and he separates himself from the Gentiles, lets them eat it in that side of the banquet hall, basically. And then he goes and he eats with them. So it was kind of a pastoral call. Paul didn't like it, and he thought it was a bad move, and so he gets in an argument. You know. The other thing, too, when you're talking about eating and all the references spiritual type of yeah yeah what in the mass one uh, everything's consecrated but the bread and wine are consecrated yeah does the concept of transubstantiation still apply or are we dealing with a uh, something other than a physical meal yeah I think you know there's a I've read stuff like I hesitate in a certain sense to use the word Tony, slap me down if I'm wrong here. Tony and I, we, we check each other's orthodoxy. Slap me down if I'm wrong, but you know, the word physical, I, I've seen theologians dispute this word physical. Like, So if someone wants to say, is Jesus physically present in the Eucharist? I, I've seen some theologians say he's substantially really present in the Eucharist, but you shouldn't use the word physical because physical denotes like a spatial presence and like an accidental presence or something. Have you heard this, Tony, in your classes? Yeah, I think that your side is right. Yeah. Okay, so the word physical, I don't know, I kind of want to shy away from it. What transubstantiation? Christ is substantially present, so you got to get into like metaphysical categories. So it's not easy to understand. But... Okay, so when we talk about metaphysical categories, we're talking about... Uh, Categories of thought that deal with the highest uh, planes of reality. That's all we're talking about when you talk about metaphysics. That, that doesn't mean it's the most general aspects of reality. Let's talk about the most general aspects of reality, like being. Okay, as opposed to this book, which is a kind of one type of being, and that plant over there, that's another kind of being, and then this person over here is another kind of being. What about being in general? Okay, so when you talk about being in general, we're getting into metaphysics. What? If someone says I am, that's existence, existence, being. You know, it's very, it's they're very abstract. Yes, they are abstract, no doubt about it. But you have to to talk about these stuff. So you you do have to get into it. So a substance is basically an individual thing. Okay, it's an individual thing. Uh, and when we talk about transubstantiation, what we're saying is that the substance of the bread, okay, before the consecration, ceases to exist. And in its place is the substance of the person of the resurrected Jesus Christ. No. 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 No, it's, really it's really actually substantially him. So just like if I were to say that the substance of Alice replaces the substance of Nancy, if Nancy just ceased, the substance that is Nancy would cease to exist, and in the place of Nancy, Alice was now substantially present, you would be really present there. So it's not it's not a representation. I mean, not in a symbolic sense, in a merely symbolic sense. It really is the substance of the person of Jesus Christ who's present. Now, the accidents of bread and wine remain, but the substance no longer exists. And it's the definition of transubstantiation. Probably it's way more subtle than that and more complicated. But that, this is a general idea. Yeah. And so that's still a, a, a concept used by the church. Oh yeah, it's a dogma of the faith. Absolutely. Because I have priests. Yeah. Tell me that, uh, the concept of transubstantiation wasn't real. 
No, yeah, it's a dogma of the faith. Yeah, yeah, it's a dogma of the faith. You get, you definitely have to believe that. It's, it's really, yeah. I mean, it really, it's the person of Christ. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to. Maybe we. I'd have to maybe talk with him. You know, maybe he was more subtle in what he was saying. But put it this way, I don't want to accuse him of being teaching something false. Okay. It, on this kind of stuff, it's really easy to, to kind of misspeak. Well, he, he really gave me the impression that it wasn't real. Yeah. We're not yeah. Yeah. Let's uh well maybe we'll call it a night so if people want to go, they can go and then we can talk a little bit more later on. We can continue to talk.